Uber. Hacked. More on the LastPass breach in Firefox 105. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin, the host of Security SOS Week, a star-studded lineup of interviews with security experts <laughs> running from September 26th to the 29th. I like the sound of that, Doug. Yes. Please join us next week, folks. It's the last week of September. We chose that because it's the week leading up to Cybersecurity Awareness Month. That's sort of coincidence. So 26, 27, 28, and 29 September 2022. Each day, there's a 30-minute interview with one of four different experts at Sophos. We've got Fraser Howard, malware expert extraordinaire. We've got Greg Rosenberg, who will explain the challenges of detecting that someone's in your network to start with, so you can head them off before it goes wrong. Peter McKenzie from our incident response team, who will tell you some fascinating, scary, but very educational stories about attackers that he's been sent in to bat against. And we wrap it all up with Craig Jones, who will tell you how to set up a SecOps team of your own. And Craig is the Senior Director of Security Operations at Sophos itself, Doug. So he does cybersecurity in a cybersecurity company. He's a lovely chap and well worth listening to. Sophos.com slash SOS week. Can't wait. I will be there. Please join me, everyone. It will be a rollicking good time. And uh, speaking of a rollicking good time, it's time for our This Week in Tech History segment, something that's near and dear to my heart this week. On September 23rd, 2008, the world's first Android phone was released. It was called the T-Mobile G1, and it featured a 3.2-inch flip-out screen that revealed a full hardware keyboard. It also had a trackball and no standard headphone jack. Early reviews were mixed, but hopeful, thanks to Android's relatively open nature. The G1 went on to sell a million handsets in six months, and at one point accounted for two-thirds of devices on T-Mobile's 3G network. I had one of those devices. It was one of my favorite phones of all time. Oh, trackballs on phones, eh? Yeah. Uh-huh. Remember the Blackberries? It was the thing, wasn't it? That trackball was yeah. really great. It was good for scrolling. Then they went, oh, moving parts, and it was mm-hmm. a kind of infrared sensor or something. Yeah. How times change, Doug. Yeah, I miss it. Like you, I liked those slide-out keyboards that early phones had. There's something reassuring about actually hearing the click, 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 click. Mm-hmm. And I think what I really liked about it is that when you popped out the keyboard, it didn't obscure half the screen. Exactly. It wasn't like half the email you were reading suddenly disappeared when you wanted to reply, <laughs> which I guess we've just got used to now. That's, yeah. That's the way of the world, I suppose. It was a long time ago. It was <laughs> simpler times. Uh, let's talk about the the Firefox 105 release. What is new from a security standpoint here, Paul? Fortunately, nothing that appears to be in the wild and nothing that rates a critical level of vulnerability. But there are a few intriguing vulnerabilities, one in which an individual web page that's split into a bunch of separate iframes could have security permission leakage between those components. So you might have a a less privileged frame from a subdomain on your site, for example, 
that isn't supposed to be able to access, say, the webcam because it's about device permissions and it looks as though it might actually be able to do so. And another similar sounding bug where a subdomain of your website, a blog or a microsite or something like that could actually mess with cookies in the parent site. Oh, and a good old <laughs> a good old stack buffer overflow when initializing graphics. Just a reminder that memory bugs are still a problem. And of course, there's the usual memory safety bugs fixed in Firefox 105 and in the extended support release, which is 102.3. Remember the extended support release, the two numbers add together, 102 plus 3 equals 105. So the extended support release is everything from the main version number plus three updates worth of security fixes, but with the feature fixes held back. So get it while it's fresh. Please do. Let's move on to the story of the century. Breathlessly reported, Uber has been hacked. And uh, looking a little closer at it, yes, it's bad, it's embarrassing, but uh, could have been much, much worse. Yes, Uber has come out with a follow-up report, and it seems that they're suggesting that a hacking group like Lapsus Dollar was responsible. We've spoken about Lapsus Dollar on the podcast before. It's a sort of a let's do it for the lulls kind of thing where it doesn't look as though they're actually after selling the data although they might give it away for free or certainly embarrass the company with it as i say the embarrassment comes from the apparent extent of the breach fortunately rather than its depth so it seems like the attackers wanted to wander around through the network as quickly as possible grabbing screenshots saying hey look Here's me in all sorts of things, including Slack workspaces, Uber's threat protection software, in old language, the antivirus, AWS console, company travel and expenses. There was a screenshot that I saw published that showed who'd put in the biggest T&E claims in recent times. <laughs> now, we laugh, but there's employee names in there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's a bad look because it's implying that the person could have got at employee data a vSphere virtual server console, Google Workspaces, and the place where it seems the hacker actually put in the Uber has been hacked in capital letters that made the headlines. It even made the naked security headline. Apparently that was posted, oh dear Doug, it's not funny, yet it is, to Uber's own bug bounty service, which is a very embarrassing look. It feels like someone got a hold of like an Uber polo shirt and put it on and sweet-talked their way past the reception desk saying, oh, my badge isn't working or something. Got into the headquarters and then just started taking pictures of stuff and then wrote on the bulletin board in the employee break room that they've been hacked. And it feels like this person could have been an initial access broker if they really wanted to. They could have done so much additional bad things while they were in there. They just kind of took pictures and it was an embarrassment to Uber. Yes, I think the key detail that we could add to your analogy of getting through the main security checkpoint is that on the way in, it also seems that they were able to reach into the super secure secret cabinet where the access all areas passes are kept and purloin one. <laughs> um, yes. In other words, they found a password in a PowerShell script on an openly visible network share, so they only needed low-level access, that allowed them to get into, essentially, 
the password manager for Uber's networks. Yeah, so it's not it's not that this wasn't unavoidable. So if we get to the, ad, the advice in your article here, we have several things that Uber could have done different. So starting with password managers and two-factor authentication are not a panacea. Just because you have those, that's just another, that's a gate, but it's not the end-all be-all to keeping someone out. Absolutely. And we'll be talking about the last pass breach in a minute, where it seems that the attackers didn't actually need to bother with the 2FA side of things. They just waited until the user that they were shadowing had gone through that exercise themselves and then borrowed their pass. So yes, 2FA doesn't mean, oh, now I don't have to worry about outsiders getting in. It does make that initial access a bit harder and may make the social engineering more complicated and more likely to stand out. But as you say, it's a, an additional security gate. And the next one, would, on sort of the same note, is once you're in, you can't just let people wander around. Security belongs everywhere in the network, not just at the edge. Do I hear you saying the words, zero trust, Douglas? <laughs> I do. Um, I was yeah. going... You know, I know that sounds like a bit of a sales spiel. And surprise, surprise, Sophos has a zero trust network access product. But we have that product because I think it's something that's demanded by the way that modern networks operate. So that you only get the access you actually need for the task in hand. And if you think about it, that doesn't just benefit the company that's dividing up its network. It's also good for users because it means they can't make unfortunate blunders, even though they think they're trying to do the right thing. And we also talk about um, regular cybersecurity measurement and testing. And if you're not able to do that in-house, consider hiring it out because you, you need eyes on this around the clock. Yes. Two cliches, if I may, Doug. You may. Uh, cybersecurity is a journey, not a destination. You continually have to revisit to make sure that A, you did it correctly, what you intended, and B, that what you planned to do yesterday is still a valid and useful defense today. And the idea of having somebody to help you review what's happening, particularly when you think something bad has just happened, is it means that you don't end up with security incidents being major distractions to your regular IT and security operations team that could actually be deliberately seeded by the crooks to act as a distraction for the attack that they've got planned for later. And then finally, we rounded out with a, a couple tips for um, your staff. Set up a cybersecurity hotline for your staff to report incidents and trust them to uh, help you out by reporting such incidents. Yes, a lot of people have decided that people are the biggest problem. Uh, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. People are, in fact one of the best ways that you can notice things that you didn't expect because it's always the things that you didn't expect that will catch you out because if you had expected them you would probably have prevented them in the first place take the goal of turning everyone in your organization into eyes and ears for your own security team very good and we've got more uber coverage uh, Paul, you and Chester Wisniewski did a great mini-sode, episode 100.5, pure thunder, if I may. It's called Uber Breach and Expert Speaks. You can hear Paul and uh, Chet talking about this particular breach a little bit more in depth. 
I think the most important thing that came out of that minisode of the podcast is what you alluded to earlier about what if this had been an initial access broker. In other words, they went in specifically to get the passwords and got out quietly. So this kind of broad but shallow attack is actually surprisingly common. And in many cases, as you suggested, the problem is that you don't realise it's happened because those crooks go out of their way to keep as quiet as possible. And the idea is they take all those access passwords, access tokens, information they've got, and sell it on the dark web for other crooks who want to do very specific things in specific parts of your network. All right, and we will stay on the breach train, but we're just going to switch cars on the train. We're going to walk across and be careful not to fall out onto the platform, but we're going to get on the LastPass car now. They've got a post-mortem out. They still don't know how they got in, but at least they admitted it, and uh, this seems like it wasn't necessarily for the lulls, but uh, similar but different to the Uber breach. Indeed, it seems that this one, you might say, was deeper but, but narrower. I think it's a good example of how to provide information that's actually useful after an attack. And as you say, they seem to have come out with information that makes it clear what they think happened. They admitted, as you say, to the known unknowns. For example, they said, kind of looks as though the crook implanted malware that was able to masquerade as a developer who had already logged in with their password and 2FA code. They figured that out, but they don't know how that implant happened in the first place. And they were decent enough to say they didn't know that. And I think that's quite good rather than just going, oh, well, we've definitely fixed all the problems and, you know, this won't happen again. If I were a LastPass user, it would make me more inclined to believe the other things that I have to rely on them to state. Namely that the development network where their code was stolen is separate from their other networks so that the attackers were not able to reach out and get things like customer data or password hashes. And I'm also inclined to accept LastPass's explanation because they're able to justify it that even if the crooks had been able to jump from the developer network to the cloud storage parts of the network, and even if they had been able to run off with the password hashes, it would have been very difficult for them to do anything with it because LastPass simply doesn't know your master password. And they have a little diagram that explains why they believe that to be the case. And I think if I were a LastPass user, I would be inclined to believe them. I am a LastPass user, and uh, I found this to be more reassuring than not. So I, I wasn't too worried about this before, and now I'm slightly less worried. And certainly not worried enough to dump it wholesale and change all my passwords and that kind of stuff. So I, I thought it was pretty good. Indeed, one of the concerns that people came out with when we first reported on this breach is, well, the crooks got into the source code control system. If they were able to download all this intellectual property, what if they were able to upload some sneaky and unauthorized changes at the same time? Like maybe they ran off with the code so they can sell the intellectual property. So there was industrial espionage was their primary vehicle. But what if there was a supply chain attack as well? And LastPass did attempt to answer that question by saying, we've reviewed source code changes, and as far as we can see, the attackers were not able or did not make any. And they explain how even if they had, 
there are checks and balances that prevent those changes just flowing automatically into the software that you might download or that their own cloud services might use. In other words, they have a a physical separation between the developer network and the production network, and a full and proper code review and testing process is required each time for something essentially to jump across that gap. I found that reassuring. They've taken precautions that make it less likely that a supply chain attack in the development network could reach customers, and they appear to have gone out of their way to verify that no such changes were made anyway. All right, there's more on that on on nakedsecurity.sophos.com, including a link to the LastPass brief itself. Let us now turn to one of our listeners, Naked Security Podcast listener Jonas writes in, and uh, this is an oldie but a goodie. I I wouldn't have believed this myself if I've heard this story before in different contexts, and I actually witnessed this as I was working as a computer technician back in the early 2000s. This is a real problem, and it happens, he writes in. In the early 90s, our computer classroom had a lot of Apple Macintosh classics with the three and a half inch floppy drives. In those days, when you needed to install things, you did so with a bunch of diskettes. Insert disk one, insert disk two, and so on. Well, one of my classmates took the installation instructions too literally. She started with the first diskette, and after a while, the installation process instructed her to please insert disk two. And she did. Just let that sit there for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, we shouldn't laugh, eh? The instructions could have been clearer. When retelling the story, she said the second disc was a bit harder to get in, but I managed to force it in. But it still kept asking for the second disc. So, she didn't understand why it still needed disc 2 when she had already inserted disc 1 and disc 2. It was quite hard to get the two discs out, and even then... The floppy drive never worked again on that Mac anyway. It needed to be replaced. But the whole class learned that you needed to remove the previous disc well, before inserting the next one. There you have it. I will it. always remember my days as a technician at CompUSA. We had a counter, and people would lug their desktops in and put the desktop up on the counter and tell us what was wrong. And I uh, saw a customer come in and immediately saw a diskette wedged in the three and a half floppy drive. And I thought, oh my God, I've heard this story. I've read about it on the internet and I'm finally experiencing it in real life. Someone had managed, it didn't get all the way in, but they managed to halfway jam a second diskette into the floppy drive and they couldn't get it out. So we had to open the case of the computer, disconnect and unscrew the floppy drive, pull the floppy drive out of the front of the computer, and then uh, took a couple of us to dislodge that diskette and uh, of course the disk drive had to be replaced thank you very much Jonas for sending that in and if you have an interesting story comment or question you'd like to submit we'd love to read it on the podcast you can email tips at sophos.com you can comment on any one of our articles or you can hit us up on social at naked security that's our show for today thanks very much for listening for Paul Ducklin I'm Doug Ameth reminding you until next time to stay Stay secure secure